Welcome to Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach with Mark Gellard and Candy Reid. Welcome to the latest edition of Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach with Mark Gellard. Mark, we find you in Malaga at the moment. You've just left Roland Garros. Unfortunately, Magda Lynette, your player, beaten in the first round after suffering a little bit of an, an injury. And you've decided to send her out on holiday and you've taken some time off yourself. I think well-deserved. Hey, Candy. Hey, everyone. Thanks for, for listening. Um, yeah, it was a tough week. We had a um, tough loss there to Leila Fernandez in the first round, who's who actually beat us there three years ago in, in Paris at Roland Garros. So it's in three sets, so it was a bit of deja vu. But there was a lot of positives out of the match. Overall, it was a decent clay court season. So we've you've got to look at the big picture. But I think any coach who is on the tour will probably agree that losing in a Grand Slam is probably the hardest one to take. That day after is really rough. It just feels like you woke up with a hangover. And, um, you know, it's, it's a build-up to, you know, the last, say, five weeks of, of competition in, in Charleston, in Kazakhstan, Fed Cup, Rome, Madrid and Strasbourg. You know, the, the goal is to build up for, for Roland Garros and then you kind of come out and you you lose, you lay an egg, however you want to say it, and it, it just doesn't go your way. So it's, it's the, I suppose, the culmination of a lot of work that you've all put in for a while and you didn't get what you wanted out of it. So, I, I, you know, this year we had the high after Australia where we, we really did had some nice results, but then... You obviously get the other side when you get the big lows, which which I think is the hardest part of this job, actually, is is which people don't realize that if you're working, even if you're just coaching more of a recreational level or not in a competitive environment or doing your regular nine to five job. And it's no disrespect to them. They've got different challenges. But the challenges we have are trying to um, maintain um, I suppose, perspective and optimism after tough losses like this. And of course, the tough loss was hampered by uh, an injury to Magda, which of course she didn't talk about too much, understandably so, because she was playing warm-up matches. But how do you handle an injury like that, particularly a hamstring, where it's probably not going to get better without rest? So is there a lot of work in between where Magda's going to see the physio? Are you laying off the practice and the gym sessions in between and just hoping that it might recover in time? Yeah, I think the different times of year, you handle it differently. Obviously, this wasn't ideal timing and it happened a week or so ago. So you, you have to see each player's different. We were lucky to have a physio with us who did a lot of treatment and it, it, and it, and it was playable. And I don't think that Magda or I would ever say that it was the definitive difference in winning and losing. It definitely was a factor, but it wasn't the factor. In, in terms of the outcome of the match. But I think now I told her, listen, we need to take a week off here um, and just reset because it's a long year. We've been going hard. And I think I think the thing, you know, as a coach, you have to constantly figure out what you could have done better. And I think for me, the reality is that having not been in the situation we were before after Australia, where we've become top 20 for the first time, we've made a semi-final we we continued or i should say i continue to to make the same choices now in these past few months that i have in previous years and and in previous years we weren't ranked 19 coming into strasbourg or to rome or madrid or playing fed cup or charleston or miami or any of those tournaments so the reality is is that we should have made some different decisions and i should have you know that lands on me 
I should have made some different decisions with the scheduling. And I think also, you know, we have to take into account age and things like this. And 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 if you look at the number of matches Magda's played, you know, just last year, I think, you know, I looked at just say three players, you know, for example, Iga is number one. She played, I think it was 18 matches, uh, tournaments, including the year end. Maria Sakari played 22, including the year end. Veronica Kudamatova played 20. We played 31. And we're mm-hmm. consistently in that 30, 31 range. It's, it's just a lot more tournaments. That's, that's eight, 10 weeks more a year on the road. That's two and a half months of extra tournaments. So at this stage, we have to be smarter. I have to do a better job of, of scheduling and making sure that she's prepared in the right way. And I think that now for her, the best preparation and the best confidence building is going in there fresh, excited to play, energetic, injury-free, and confidence is coming now from her good practice weeks. So essentially what you're saying is less is more, I suppose. And it isn't necessarily about the matches played, is it? But all the traveling that you have to do Uh, since we've started this podcast. So you've been all over the world pretty much week to week in a different country. And that must be just physically and mentally so exhausting. It's it's tough for everyone. But like I said, I think if, if I could go back after Australia, we played two tournaments, one in Mexico and one in Austin. I think we should have probably rethought that because we went, we were back in after Australia for maybe 10 days. And then it was straight out to, to Mexico for a week, Austin for a week, Indian Wells, Miami, Charleston, Kazakhstan, Rome, sorry, Madrid, Rome, Strasbourg, Paris. That's too much. Mm. And there's a reason why the other girls, the top 20 players weren't playing in Strasbourg the week before the French open, because they know they need to rest. We wanted to play it because, and, and 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 the problem I have is that I hope that I would do a different decision next year, but there's always that question of make hay while the sun is shining. If you're playing well, you know, and you win a tournament or you do very well. For example, I was thinking last year, a good friend of Magda's, Bernardo Pera, won a clay court event after Wimbledon last year. Did a really great job, won a 250. Won the tournament and then went and played a second tournament the following week and won it again. Mm-hmm. so back to back. you know it's it's back to back now 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 maybe you know what if i'd said to bernard if i was coaching her no we're not going to play a second week you did great this week you won it let's not play the next week well look she went and won the tournament and that was huge for her that's a huge result it's just like what we've done in the past before and i think my mentality as a coach has always been i think at the end of the, the season i'd always rather have that feeling that I maybe did one tournament too many rather than one tournament too little, if that makes sense, you know, Mm. uh, but it's, there's a, you know, pluses and minuses on both sides. You sort of live and learn and you can understand after Magda's success in Australia and yours, of course, that a lot of people want her. Uh, She's been the top seed in three different events now, hasn't she? Which sort of puts you in a different echelon than one you've perhaps been in before. So totally understandable, but obviously lessons to be learnt. So just looking forward to the grass season, which comes next. We've got the two extremes, haven't we, from clay to grass. What's the schedule after a short break? So Magda's going to take a, a week off now and hopefully just leave that hamstring alone, let it recover and be and be, and be ready to go. And then we will get a week or so of practicing in England somewhere, hopefully weather permitting. And, and then we're looking at Nottingham and Birmingham and Eastbourne. But obviously, again, that will be dependent on how we're feeling physically, mentally, because uh, I think if we, you know, like I said, now we've, we've got to learn from previous 
mistakes or lessons and, and, and make adjustments depending on how she feels at the time. Well, I can tell you the good news is the weather in Britain is fantastic. And you and Ian Hughes, both being British, we've got to make hay, as you said, in Britain, don't you, over the grass court season, which is very short indeed. Now, we've obviously been trying to record this podcast for a few days and I remember one day you saying you were actually looking at some video for match prep ahead of the match against Leila Annie Fernandez. And I was wondering about your schedule. When you get to a tournament, particularly a major, which is obviously a lot bigger with more prize money and points, more prestige, what is the routine in regards to Magda's opponents? I think that's something that every coach does differently. I have definitely evolved my thinking in that. In the past, I would probably been uh, have been a little bit more opponent-oriented in, in terms of trying to figure out what their tendencies are. When we're watching matches, I always try to find somebody that plays a similar game to Magda. So if I'm watching Fernandez's match, I don't want to see her playing a, a six-foot-two left-hander. <laughs> you know, I would like to see someone that plays a similar style to Magda. But I think as I've spent more time with Magda, I think that the focus is actually more on watching videos of us and what we need to do because I think we've kind of taken a little bit more of the mentality of we have to make other people adjust to us. Now, there's certain players that you can't do that to and you need to know tendencies. But I think in, in general now, we're definitely trying to focus a little bit more on watching videos of, you know, here's five or 10 minutes of what we expect is going to happen in this match today or tomorrow. But this is what we need to do. And then having reinforced that. So after Australia, for example, she has a video on her phone that lasts seven or eight minutes with her kind of best points with her favorite music on it that she can watch anytime she wants just to keep clear in her mind about what she's trying to do. Cause I think when she's clear about what she wants, then, then that's the most important part. I remember hearing people that are in data analytics talking about giving clips of opponents to their players and they've made the mistake in the past of showing good clips, so points that the opponent has done really well. But actually, the best thing to do is pick shots that they haven't done so well, make a compilation of those, send it to your player, and the player actually feels a lot better about themselves and their chances. Well, that's the problem. When you watch online, YouTube, for example, has the highlights. Mm. But the highlights, every, even I look good on the highlights. So what <laughs> we try to do is you, know, you get companies that, that will actually do the data tagging for you where you can literally tag and find out every forehand mistake, backhand mistake when they went down the line. It, there's so many parameters you can choose from, but what I prefer with Magda is to just sit down and watch, you know, watch four or five games and get a real feel of momentum. How do they play? Are they a player that plays more aggressive when they get ahead or do they play more defensive when they get ahead? Are they a player that likes to be sort of in in the lead or do they play better from behind to see things like that you need to watch the match unfold and see how it really progresses rather than just watching what i would say the highlights or the lowlights of the match so just going back to the day before uh, a match say at a major could you break down the schedule for us there's obviously some practice time in the gym some time perhaps with the physio and then also time watching some of the opponent and perhaps watching video of yourself so could you give us a typical day the day before a tournament starts the Grand Slams usually, usually, other than the French, start on a Monday. The French is the only one that starts on a Sunday. Uh, and the, the, the draw, I believe, was done on Thursday. Mm. So we, that gave us, well, normally it would have given us till Monday, but three or four days to then start preparing for the opponent. So, you know, we will, for example, practicing this week before playing Fernandez, we, we were trying to find some left-handed hitting partners or some left-handed players, which would be, you know, just to give you that that look that you're likely to see. 
And then uh, the day before is usually very light. It's a maximum of an hour on court practice, maybe some some simple stuff in the gym, just some some fine tuning stuff to get ready before you play a half an hour maximum. And then, you know, a, a massage stretch and then back to the hotel, try and get an early dinner. Some players like to watch matches or watch video and discuss with the team the night before. I know other coaches I've spoken to and they say their player hates that. They don't want to have that information and then go to sleep mm. or try to go to sleep. Having to think about all this overnight, it keeps them awake. They're you know stressed out by it. So, so a lot of players prefer to do it in the morning. So it depends. Some players want to do it two, three days in advance. But you, usually with Magda, we will the day before sort of be going over some basic things to be aware of what to expect. And I think that in general, if you looked at, if you did watch the match, um, definitely wasn't our best, but probably I think there was a six point difference in the match. And I think if you asked Magda, there was probably eight or nine points there where she would say, I had won that point or I was in control of that point and I missed the last shot. Uh, so there was maybe 10 points you would like to have back there. So, you know, sometimes the strategy can be good and you can you can lose. Sometimes the strategy can be bad and you can win. There's a lot of factors that go into the result. Yeah, it's uh, such a marginal game, isn't it? Now let's move forward to the day of competition. In this instant, Magda was second on after a men's match, which began at 11. And I know this because I was supposed to commentate. We were actually moved to another men's match, but that's by the by. So how do you prepare for a, a second on court after a men's match, which could or could not go five sets? It's tricky because the when you're behind, I mean, we were only second after a men's match, so it's not too bad. For the players that are playing maybe fourth or fifth on that court, that's really tricky because a men's match, best of five, usually doesn't end in less than two hours, but then can be as long as five hours. And then you've, if you've got two of those on your court, you know, your day can be really difficult mm -hmm. to, to schedule. So being second, we obviously wanted to practice on the court we were playing on just to get that feeling of the court, the speed of the bounce, um, everything like that. So we got a practice in there at uh, 9.45 to 10.15. And uh, we would have liked the, the 10.15 to 10.45, but that wasn't possible. So we, we took what we could. We had the whole court and uh, gave us a chance there to, to, you know, to feel the court, as I said. And then um, the matches started at 11. So the men's match starts at 11. Soon as we're done, she's going to shower, change, tape with the physio, whether she tapes her toes a little bit, sometimes on her hands. She had to tape her legs a little bit this week. And then meet in the restaurant and usually a pretty standard bowl of pasta with chicken, get, get the carbs in, get ready to play. And then just keep an eye on the score. And then usually when it's 2-1 in the final set, what we believe to be the final set, we'll start making our way to the gym to start the warming up procedure. And, you know, she'll do her running and a dynamic warm-up routine, everything like that, and then get ready to go from there. How do you keep her calm? Because I'd imagine, and I know from my playing experience, I'm sure you had the same, but you get the, the butterflies in the stomach. There's a lot of adrenaline that's going on. And of course, you may get a men's match, which looks like it's going to go straight sets, does go to four sets, maybe goes to five sets. So you're constantly battling with the nerves, the adrenaline. How do you keep Magda calm? Because, of course, we know that in tennis, you've got to stay pretty relaxed, don't you? You can't get too uptight. Yeah, I, I think, again, it's very uh, idiosyncratic to each player. But I think Magda... She's she, you know, I think some players play better when they're nervous. There's got to be a level of nerves and excitement because you don't want to kill that. That's that that fight or flight. And she definitely thrives under the pressure. 
I think I'm probably more nervous than she is because I think I think once you get as a coach, once you get to that before the match and during the match stage, the best word I can use is that you're powerless. There's really not a lot you can do. You kind of see the signs, the good signs. You see the danger signs that before matches, but really by then your work is done. Now the job is just it, it all lands on her really, and that's where she's you know she's the one that has to take all the pressure on. So I think she's over the years got better at dealing with it. But I think um, I asked her this the other day, and she said, you know, I I probably don't handle it a whole lot better than I did when I was younger. I just I'm about the same. I think sometimes when you're young and new, it's just exciting. You just play. There's no thoughts about my ranking or if I lose, because, you know, if you're young, you've got many more chances. I actually think at this side of her career, that's maybe when she starts thinking a little bit more about the future and, you know, how many more opportunities I'm going to have and, and the ifs and buts, but she's um overall, she's pretty good at that herself. We we're there. if She needs uh, to talk, but yeah, that bits on her. Now, the Roland Garros experience, how was that for you? I know you've done it many, many years. They came out with a new app, didn't they, which made, well, life, I suppose, a little bit easier. Everything you could do on the app, like hiring hiring taxis, hiring cars, booking practice courts. Did that make it easier? Yeah, they had a new app, Roland Garros Players app this year, which I, I for me, if I was running the WTA, I would have made an app already. I would have given it and licensed it for a lot of money to all the tournaments if possible. And I think it's a great thing. I think that so many parts of the tennis are still so far behind in terms of if I want to book a practice court, I've got to call at, you know, say seven o'clock when I, when, when they open the booking, the practice booking in the evening around six or seven, most of the time, and you've got to call up and, and the number's busy for two hours and you just keep calling back every 20 minutes, you're on hold. The app was great. You could book practice. You could find out which court, you could see which players were looking you could book your transportation on the app. So again, you didn't need to make phone calls to do it. You just book the on the app. You could you could really, you could do your accommodation um, stuff on there as well. So overall, the app was a real great improvement. And I hope the other the slams follow suit with that, to be honest with you. Now, being British, uh, neither you or I believe are huge fans of clay court tennis ourselves, just not knowing really how to play on it. So are you quite relieved that the clay court season is over or would you like a few more weeks? No, I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> I, I, I hate every. I I can't stand the the clay gets all over my clothes in the bag and everything's dirty and no, I I I'm like an elephant on ice out there when I play. So it's 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 better for me to get on the grass, which which I'm not much better on, but I just prefer. I feel a little bit more sure-footed on there, you know. And then the hard courts where I'm more comfortable. But yeah, I definitely. I think I think one thing for me with clay is that you get such an advantage. The two things are one is that if you grew up on it, it's a huge advantage because I think a clay court player can then switch over to a hard court to become a hard court player much easier than a hard court player could switch over to clay. I think the movement part is really, really tricky, but I think that also the on a clay court, although I don't think that you should go, okay, let's have clay courts all over England. No, I don't think that, but I think that the clay actually can sometimes act as a great coach. It can teach you the game better than any coach can. You you learn how to make the ball work for you. You learn about trajectories better. You learn how to use spins more effectively, your touch. You know, you see more, for example, more drop shots on a clay court than any other surface. So you mm. immediately you're working on your touch. You see higher, heavier shots. 
on a clay court. So you're working, you're learning how to make the ball work for you more. Obviously you have to, you know, your movement has to be very sharp. So I think that the clay, you know, one thing I hope for Magda is, is that after a clay season, she can take, she's learned some lessons. She's actually improved during this block of time or this block of tournaments, I should say, and that she will implement those lessons on the grass and the hard. So she will learn, you know, her depth control, her spin control, making the ball work for her. Just her overall tennis IQ, I think, improves playing on the clay. Hmm. I think on the on the hard court, you can get a little bit lucky with winning points with a shot. Whereas in on a clay court, you, you know, and Ian talks to, the, to Magda about this a lot, is, is, is you can't win a match with good shots you can you could win a match with good points right um and there's a big difference and on a on a on a hard court you can win some points and you can get away with things and cover some cracks with a good shot here and there you know but on a clay court you just don't have that luxury yeah that's a good point and uh, we've seen a lot of upsets haven't we in the first few days of Roland Garros just watched uh, Caroline Garcia go out at the hands of Anna Blinkova and of course, we saw the Rome men's champion, Daniil Medvedev, lose in the first round. How do you account for all the upsets we've seen? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we actually practiced with Anna Blinkova uh, last week in Strasbourg and she was playing great. We knew she was going to be dangerous. I, I think right now, you know, I think the, especially on the women's side, it's always sounds strange to say, but uh, you have those top couple of players right now that are showing that they're a little bit more elite than everyone else. Iga, Rybakina, Sabalenka. And then there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, I think um, seeing today Caroline Garcia lose, mm. but also seeing, I think, Ostapenko lost today. That's right. Um, to um, Peyton Stearns, who was an NCAA champion a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I, I we practiced, you know, like I said, with with uh, practice with Anna Blinkova last week. She was playing great. And then we played doubles against Ostapenko in, in Rome. And, geez, she was hitting so well. Yeah. She was playing so well. And if you'd have asked me, Three or four days ago, I might have had her down as one of the players that could be a potential candidate on that top 10 list to win the tournament. And she goes out in, the, I think, first or second round. Second round. And I, th I think you were right to pick her as a potential favourite. I mean, a former champion, isn't she? Goes out in the second round to a, a player from the USA who's not really familiar with red clay. She's not. A friend of mine, Tom Downs, was coaching Peyton uh, about a year ago or helping uh, with her and. uh she practiced with us in Cleveland and, and right away you can see the girl knows how to play tennis. So, you know, as a coach, I said, uh, I'm not surprised by this. It's good mm. for her. Nice girl. I'm great for the American mm. tennis, but not completely surprising, but still surprising. And what about the weather conditions? Uh, actually, I was just listening to Mats Willander speaking to a few players after their matches and asking about the hot and dry conditions. Daria Kazakina is one player that says she actually really benefits because the ball's getting up a little bit higher on the opponents. So do you think if it stays dry and as hot as it has, that that will change perhaps the dynamic of the tournament? I think that definitely has a factor more on, on those courts than any others. Um, you know, clay is really susceptible to the weather conditions more so than a hard or a grass court. But I think, um, you know, you'd say if it was slow and heavy, you're going eager looks really good. But then so does Sabalenka and so does Rybakina. So I, I, I think that overall it may even out. It will help certain players more than it will hurt them or, or help other players. But yeah, I'm, I wouldn't want to be predicting anything right now. I hope you don't <laughs> want me to make any predictions. <laughs> so you're not one of the gamblers that's sending nasty messages to the players, which 
I'd quite like to talk to you about because I know the French Open brought out this new bodyguard social media app to stop bad words and, and things getting through to the players. I'm not sure if it's helped because Sloane Stevens has one that said actually the abuse she's received has got even worse. Is that a problem, do you think, um, among the professional tennis players? It does seem horrendous, uh, some of the texts they get, some of the social media stuff. And how do we stop this, if at all possible? I, yeah, I know Magda, Magda gets after every match, she can get 100 messages. She can get 20, 30, 40, up to 100 messages after every match she plays. It's not nice. I, I sympathize with the with the girls and the players, I do. But my, my simple thing for Magda is, well, just don't open your messages. If, if it really bothers you, don't don't open them. You know, these girls can, or players, I should say, because it happens on the men's side as well, have a lot of people running their social media for them. So just make sure you're not the one, you know, reading the messages, block them. You can block a lot of people. There's always going to be people coming through. But I just, I think that, you know, unfortunately, for example, I would imagine from what I've heard that the Russian players are getting a lot more abuse now than they did previously because of the war situation. But we can't do anything to stop that. That's out of our control. So, you know, I think it's a good initiative that the French, the, the Ron Garris did by having this app. And I think it will hopefully get improve over time. But I, I don't see a massive way that you're ever going to be able to stop that. If people want to send you a message, they're going to send you a message. The best thing is to either be tough enough to not, you know, pay, not be bothered by it. Or, or, or if you're not, then just don't don't look at it. And I, I said to Magda, you know, unfortunately, yes, you're getting a lot of hate on there. All the players are when they lose. But at the same time, they're also these players are making a lot of money out of social mm -hmm. media and Instagram with their posts and things like this so it you know you can't have it all you, you know there is a, a downside to it for sure yeah works both ways finally there was something we were talking about a couple of weeks ago and you suggested you know a way to market a lot of the events and you said why don't you bring the tickets down it seems like Roland Garros have very much done that they've got lots of 10 euro tickets for under 25s they're selling 85,000 tickets under 20 euros which is quite incredible and we saw a record number of uh, fans out at Roland Garros last year, over 600,000. And I suspect, given the weather, probably going to be beaten. So that's another good initiative, isn't it? Yeah, that's great. I'm really happy they did that. And it's, it's funny because this year, uh, well, this tournament, I should say, actually was probably the most amount of messages I've ever received on Instagram, Facebook, text, WhatsApp. And, and I would say 90% of them from people I've never met. <laughs> or don't know just saying hey i would like to come watch magda can you get me tickets because they're not they're, they're, they're sold out they've sold out of tickets unfortunately we just can't we just can't help everyone but um the players are very limited uh, on what they get each each day depending on you know they'll get tickets the day they play usually depending on which court will depend on will, will, will mean how many they get but it's not easy to get tickets i mean uh there's so much um demand from from friends and family and you know like i said if you're playing on a small court in in roland garros you may only get two or three tickets for your match and um and then for example when the box on we played it on simon mature there's 12 seats in the box so you do get 12 tickets but only for that match but mm. your entire team needs tickets as well so it's not like your credential it's not like these are an additional 12 so make for me for ian for the physio and for her agent, that's four right away. So we're always, you know, needing tickets as well. So it's not as easy as uh, people think to get tickets. And it's funny how many friends I have during these <laughs> Grand Slams. Which is the hardest ticket to get in tennis? Wimbledon. Mm. A bit like the Masters. 
I had somebody message me yesterday. Hey, Mark, I'm coming to Wimbledon this year. Could you get tickets for me and my mum? I just wrote back, right? No, I cannot. It's impossible. They have, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that usually the rule at Wimbledon is one ticket the day you play. That's it. It's incredible. And it's coming up, isn't it? The third major of the year. And so that will do it for this edition of Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach. Mark, thank you very much. Have a good week off. And we'll catch you when you're uh, rested and refreshed. Thanks a lot, Candy. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Enjoy the rest of Roland Garros.